For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the latest on the trial of Scott Warren and what it means for humanitarian aid on the U.S.-Mexico border. I'll talk with Doug Cosmo Clifford, the drummer of Creedence Clearwater Revival, about deciding to end his touring career 50 years after playing Woodstock. And look back at two of Hollywood's tallest tales about the Old West, as Chris DeShiel talks about the movies inspired by Judge Roy Bean. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. An Arizona humanitarian worker, Scott Warren, is facing federal charges for smuggling and harboring undocumented migrants. His case is getting support and media attention from around the country. AZPM's immigration and border reporter, Nancy Montoya, joins us now with an update on the trial, which is in its second week. Hi, Mark. Well, hi. Thank you for being here, Nancy. Can you start, please, by giving our listeners an outline of this case? Well, Scott Warren, a 36-year-old humanitarian worker, is a member of the all-volunteer group called No More Deaths. And their mission is basically to go out on the Arizona side of the border in the desert and leave food and water and clothing for migrants who have crossed the border, most of them illegally. And uh, last year, January of 2018, Border Patrol uh, initiated a raid of an area that No More Death uses. It's called The Barn, and it's a place where volunteers gather. But this particular time, there were two undocumented uh, immigrants at The Barn, uh, one from El Salvador and one from Honduras. And Scott Warren was there as well, and he offered them food and clothing and shelter for three days. He was arrested. There was a raid there, and Border Patrol arrested him, and he was eventually charged with conspiracy to transport and harbor the two undocumented migrants. And what was the fate of the migrants? Well, they've both been deported at this point. Um, They were arrested, and uh, in fact, the trial is underway right now, and they had to display video testimony for the migrants because they're not available anymore. So tell me about this national attention that the trial has been receiving. Well, just this week, there was a a gathering outside of the federal courthouse here in Tucson. And I would say there were 100, 150 people there. But the unusual thing is that there were many, many people from out of state, from around the country. Uh, I was able to talk to people from Texas, Florida, California, the Carolinas, uh, and from uh, the state of New York. I did manage to find three women who had come into town from South Dakota in order to support Scott Warren. The three women are Anne Wire, Kathy Sandrick, and Melanie Bliss. And I asked Melanie, are people in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, talking about the Scott Warren case? These issues um, with the border and migrants affect us all in this country. Uh, Despite being in South Dakota, we feel those effects, we feel the tension. We are here to learn more about the situation and understand the realities. 
I also understand that right now there are some bills that are being introduced in the House and the Senate that are aimed at reducing the number of migrants at the border. Just Tuesday night, there was a telephone town hall with Senator Martha McSally and uh, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. And Lindsey Graham has introduced a bill that's called the Secure and Protect Act of 2019. This bill basically does two things. One, it uh, will not allow migrants to seek asylum at the border. They have to apply for asylum from their home countries. And number two, if a family does reach the border, they'll have 100 days to plea their case and uh, Border Patrol or Customs or Immigration Judge will decide whether they have a valid case or not. And if it's invalid, uh, that family will all be deported back to their country of origin. Lindsey Graham seems to think that this is the type of bill that will work. This year, in seven months of this fiscal year, we've already doubled the number of legal immigrants we had since uh, in all of 2018's fiscal year. We're on track for a million people to come here legally. We're also going to hire 500 immigration judges to get through the backlog. We're going to make sure small children are taken care of. I'm willing to spend money in Central American countries to get to the root cause of the problem, but only after we stop the flow. Also, you've reported that many immigration experts are saying that this case uh, is going to set a precedent. Uh, In what way? Well, in many ways. Number one, it's not just No More Deaths that is doing these runs into the desert to help people. Groups like the Tucson Samaritans, the Green Valley Samaritans, there are many organizations that have aligned themselves with the idea that people should not be dying in the desert. The government says that Scott Warren and people like him with these various organizations are breaking the law by assisting uh, undocumented migrants. On the other side, the humanitarian workers say we're not breaking the law. What we are doing is we're following our religious beliefs to give shelter, to give food, to give water to those who are in need. Now, if Scott Warren is found guilty then the onus will be placed on all of these other groups not to do this anymore. Uh, If he's found innocent, then it's basically giving them the green light to continue doing the work that they're doing. And it's the first case like this that is being prosecuted, I would say, in the past decade. To what degree does Scott Warren say that his actions were motivated by religious or spiritual beliefs? That's one of his main points, is that he claims that his religious beliefs Uh, have taught him that you are to give service to those in need, that you are to give aid to those in need. His mother, Pam Warren, was a social worker, and I was talking to her a couple of days ago outside of the courtroom, and I said, how did you raise Scott? What were the, the things that you taught him growing up? And does this surprise you that Scott would be doing something like this? And she said, you know, we, um, we actually taught our children to be of service. We taught our children that if you see somebody who's hurting and you have something that can help them, then do it. So she wasn't surprised at all that Scott is involved with No More Deaths. And she feels that even if he is convicted, that the No More Deaths group will continue. Is there any idea at this point when this trial will be concluded? 
I believe that this trial will be concluded this week. Uh, not sure when the jury uh, will have a verdict on this, but it's been a very controversial, a very emotional trial. And uh, it is an important case that will have ramifications for years to come. Nancy, our listeners can follow all of your reporting on this trial at azpm.org. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Mark. The sound of Creedence Clearwater Revival has a timeless quality. Although it played an important part in the socially conscious movement of the late 60s and the Vietnam era, it seems older, rooted in swampy traditions of the Mississippi River, Cajun country, and Appalachia. After seven albums and 14 top 40 hits, the group disbanded in 1972. It wasn't until 1995 that founding members Doug Cosmo Clifford and Stu Cook returned to the music they loved by forming Creedence Clearwater Revival. This year, after 25 years of touring together under that name and 50 years since the original lineup of CCR played at Woodstock, they've decided to end their careers as touring musicians. I interviewed drummer Doug Clifford, an Arizona snowbird with a home in Flagstaff, and we started with what he remembers about Creedence playing at Woodstock, a set that was sandwiched between The Grateful Dead and Janis Joplin. Well, I, I remember The Grateful Dead. I don't, I don't remember Janis. I would have stayed around for Janis because she was a friend and, and uh, she, she uh, loved Creedence when we would play in the Bay Area. Uh, if she wasn't working, she would always be at our shows. And she said, I just loved y'all. So I'm sorry we missed her, but we had to get out because uh, it was a hard thing to do at that particular time, especially at night. And uh, we had to get everything out, uh, including our gear and all all of our people out uh, because we had a show the next night in, in uh New Jersey, and, and a lot of other bands would have probably just said, "Oh, we can't." We'll just say we can't get out of here and and stay. But we uh, we had a responsibility to be in New Jersey the next night, and we made it. So <laughs> the the one thing I do remember is there, everyone was smiling. No one was was a perfect uh, table for for violence and and misbehavior because there were far too many people and not nearly enough. Uh, things uh, to take care of them, like potable water, toilets, food, uh, the basics, and uh, everyone just shared with uh, uh, perfect strangers in a lot of cases what they had and uh, decided they were going to make the best out of it, and they did. It was uh, the hair on my arm stood up. You could feel, uh, it might sound corny, you could feel the love there. Peace, love, and music was the... uh, the title of it, of course, and uh, they they nailed it, and uh, accidentally too. I, I mean, it was just everyone was very, very, uh, very cool. Did you ever know a guy named Dan Hicks? Dan Hicks and his hot licks. You bet. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but I sure did know of him and, and his music <laughs> and his reputation. He was a bit of a character, and uh, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed uh, uh, Dan. Well, the reason I bring uh, Dan Hicks up is because I did have the pleasure of interviewing him uh, a couple of years before he passed. And I asked him, Dan, is there anything that you miss about the 60s? He was very thoughtful and he, he gave it a good go in his mind. And he said, you know, I can't think of a thing. And that answer kind of surprised me, but I felt that like he was being very genuine. 
Hmm. Um, so I'm going to ask you that same question. Is, can you think of something that you miss from that era? Uh, well, I, I, quite honestly, I miss a, a lot of the, the uh, music that came through San Francisco, Bill Graham's, uh, Fillmore West, and uh, some of the other venues uh, that, that were around. There was some great music that came through there and uh, pr- presented well. Uh, I, I, I do miss that. And then, of course, we were touring as well. So we we missed a lot of the uh, the local stuff, but there was uh, terrific music in a in a time period when there was so much social change, and I think that one of the the strongest art forms was uh, the the music that came out collectively. Uh, you know, there was it was a lot of great bands, and great uh, guys like Dan Hicks, you know, that came along with it. So uh, I, I I would su- suppose I, I I missed that. How is it that drums became a good fit? Well, uh, I loved uh, the rock and roll music. I started buying records in 1953 when I was nine, and they were 78s. Uh, they weren't even 45s. It was a very brittle medium <laughs> and uh, easily broken, and so you had to be very careful with it. Uh, the first record I bought was uh, Roll With Me, Henry by Etta James. Uh, not bad for a nine-year-old, and then uh, <laughs> Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley, and, oh, and I, you know, the, the tom-tom rhythm that was happening throughout that song did uh, catch my attention, but it wasn't until I was about 12 years old and I saw a special with Gene Krupa. They never showed the band, but they had like, I don't know, 10 kits set up, and he walked through with a white sport coat on and black greasy hair. He looked like a movie star. It uh, didn't look like any drummer I'd ever seen before. Playing the cymbal the, the stands and hitting a cymbal here and there and playing around the drum sets. And then when the, the band kicked into the chorus, he sat down behind one of the kids and, and played the, the rest of the way out. That was it. I started saving my allowance and buying. I bought a snare drum and I had a marching bass drum. Um, when I ran into John in, in, in the music room in the eighth grade playing Little Richard and Fats Domino, I knew all those songs I, by heart. I had the records, so I said, that's Fats Domino and Little Richard. I said, uh, do you want to start a band? He said, yeah, what do you play? And I said, well, I play drums. Well, I didn't play drums. I wanted to, and I was teaching myself, but you know, I didn't even have a full kit. He said, well, actually, I play guitar. I'm looking for a piano player. And I said, I know the guy. His name is Stu Cook. His dad's a rich lawyer. He's got a big rumpus room with a piano. We can practice there. <laughs> and I hadn't, I hadn't even asked Stu if he wanted to join. I certainly hadn't asked his parents if we could come down and menace the piano a little bit with some rock and roll. <laughs> but it ultimately uh, came to be, and, and that's how we started a, a, as a, an instrumental trio called the Blue Velvets. My favorite Creedence song is Born on the Bayou. It was uh, going to be the first single off the second album, and uh, because it had the quarter note beat uh, on, the, on the drums that Suzy Q had, and we had success with that, and we thought, yeah, we'll do that one. It has a little bit up-tempo. And so uh, it was a turntable hit. It got airplay, but it didn't sell, and uh, there were people who had uh, subscription sheets for radio people, and they were hit, hit pickers, as they were called, and they had an ear for what a single would be, and, and then they, so they would sell these uh, sheets to, to radio in both secondary and, and major markets. 
So he's the one that picked Susie Q, by the way. So without him, I wouldn't be having this conversation. But anyway, uh, he, in one of his sheets that followed uh, after the release of Born on the Bayou, he says, you have the right record, you just have to turn it over. And on the B-side was Proud Mary. Boom. <laughs> that was good. That exploded. <laughs> and we were on our way. Doug, let's talk for a moment about your uh, musical partnership with Stu Cook. What's it like after all these years? Have you got your own language worked out? Well, yeah, and and, and it's an unspoken one. You know, we don't we don't uh, have to <laughs> have to say anything. We a lot of it happens on stage as, as we're playing. Uh, we know the material, needless to say, uh, and uh, every once in a while you might sneak something in that not too many people in the room would would pick up on, but uh, he certainly will, and, and vice versa. Uh, you know, that's that's what we do. So it's uh, it's been it's been fun, and, and uh, the revisited project is it's our 25th year, but it, this is our last uh, final rodeo here. We both talked about it. We have a lot of things that we can do. Uh, uh, a lot of it is family. They've sacrificed uh, over the years. I've missed a lot of birthdays. Uh, so not mine, certainly, <laughs> but uh, kids, grandkids, uh, spouse. Uh, and so it's uh, going to be a lot a lot more family time. Uh, I'm going to do a lot more writing and work my publishing. So I'll be in the creative side, not in the performance side for my musical career from the end of the year on out. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I won't miss the traveling. The traveling just gets continually worse. Uh, the friendly skies aren't so friendly, and long bus rides aren't aren't the greatest thing in the world. And fifteen passenger vans uh, are are really dangerous. <laughs> I won't miss it uh, that part of it. I'll miss the playing and the guys and and our fans. Uh, so uh, we'll still have our fans out there, and maybe I can put some songs out that they might want to listen to and pick up. So our number one market uh, on a per capita basis was Mexico. And we didn't do one song in, in Spanish, so, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it is that universal language. Drummer Doug Cosmo Clifford and bassist Stu Cook bring the last tour of the band Creedence Clearwater Revisited to the Desert Diamond Casino on Friday, June 14th. American pioneer spirit on the march. First came the cattlemen, and with them, Roy Bean, a self-appointed judge who took the law into his own hands. If you travel today to the region around Pecos, Texas, you'll find several historic reminders about a very eccentric character from the tail end of the era called the Old West. It's not always easy to separate the tall from the tail when we're talking about the life and times of Judge Roy Bean, but that didn't stop Hollywood filmmakers from offering up their own versions and mostly shooting those films right here around Tucson. Here's Chris DeShiel. One of the biggest industries of the American West was myth-making. 
the demand for sensational stories about cowboys and outlaws, produce a seemingly endless supply of exaggerated newspaper accounts, Wild West shows, stories, plays, dime novels, and eventually movies. One of the minor historical figures that ended up a legend was Roy Bean, a Kentucky-born gunrunner and small-time crook who, in 1882, somehow got himself appointed Justice of the Peace in a tiny village near the Rio Grande in West Texas. He owned a saloon there and administered the law while serving drinks, eventually getting a reputation as a hanging judge, subject to extremely arbitrary whims. That, and his often stated affection for the beautiful English actress Lily Langtree, was enough to foster the colorful myth of Judge Roy Bean. A short story about Bean by Stuart Lake, a writer already well known for promoting the Wyatt Earp legend, caught the attention of someone at the Goldwyn Studios. Goldwyn bought the rights and assigned its top director, William Wyler, to make a film about him in 1940 called The Westerner. The movie begins against the background of one of the classic Western themes, ranchers versus homesteaders. As usual, the cattlemen are the bad guys, and Judge Bean, played by Walter Brennan, acts as their ally in trying to force the farmers off the land. Jane Matthews, played by Doris Davenport, is the daughter of the upright spokesman for the homesteaders, and the love interest for Cole Harden, played by Gary Cooper, mistakenly identified as a horse thief and brought before the judge to be tried and hanged. The wordplay between Brennan and Cooper is a brilliant achievement by the screenwriters Joe Swirling and Niven Bush. And Cooper, who gets top billing as the star of the film, wisely lets Brennan dominate their scenes together. The outrageous sequence in which Cole is put on trial, literally at the bar, includes testimony by the horse that he supposedly stole, nodding along while the owner identifies Cole as the thief. While the jury goes off for drinks in preparation for the inevitable guilty verdict, Cole notices a poster of Lily Langtree and saves his neck by claiming to be her close friend and promising to give Bean a lock of her hair that he owns if they delay the hanging. The Westerner was shot in many locations around Tucson, including what is now Green Valley. You can see the Santa Rita Mountains in a few of the shots. It's a highly entertaining film, and it's also pure fiction even changing the circumstances of Bean's death to fit the story. Walter Brennan is most well-known for playing irascible, good-hearted sidekicks, but in this performance, which earned him his third Oscar for supporting actor, he plays a mean, narrow-minded bigot, albeit vulnerable in his soft spot for the actress Langtree. After this movie, Roy Bean's reputation as an eccentric hanging judge was now secure. This here's a big country. Yeah, but it ain't big enough for cattlemen and homesteaders, and it never will be. Now clear out of here. All right, Dean. We're going. We're going back to build our fences. If you do, you better build coffins along with them. Over three decades later, John Houston and screenwriter John Milius brought Bean back to life in The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, released in 1972. Paul Newman plays the judge from his beginnings, establishing his peculiar brand of justice in West Texas, through his marriage to a Mexican teenager played by Victoria Principal in her very first role, to his being pushed out of power by a sleazy banker played by Roddy McDowell, only to return later for vengeance with the help of Bean's daughter played by Jacqueline Bissett. It's a loose, episodic film that takes a wistfully humorous view of Bean. We are shown his corrupt ways and his quirks, such as claiming to use a book containing the laws of Texas as a guide while not actually reading them. 
Houston himself shows up as a mountain man who presents Bean with a trained bear named Zachary Taylor. Scenes with Paul Newman and this bear are among the film's more whimsical touches. What are you doing there in the middle of nowhere, digging a hole? My grave! When that wheel come off my wagon, I took it for a sign. This here's my dying ground. Where are you coming from? Lived in the mountains most of my days. I was a mountain man. Knew Jim Bridger, Kip Carson, Liver Eaton Johnson. He was a good fella when he started out. The things get to him, though. Went bad up in the winters. Yeah, a man will do that. What's your name, mister? I'm Grizzly Adams. Direct descendant of John Quincy Adams. Sixth president of the United States. His blood is in me. But I went wild as a youth and run away to the mountains. Good life, free life, but cold. So cold, I'd go to the bars in winter and lie up with them in their cave. That's why I'm known as Grizzly. I cohabitated with the bars. What are you doing in Vinegaroon? All my life I've been cold. Now I come south to die where it's warm. Well, it's warm here. But there'll be no illegal dying. The only people that die in my town are those that I shoot or hang and get along with you. Also hilarious is a brief appearance by Stacy Keach as Bad Bob, an insane albino gunman who wants to fight Roy Bean in a duel. Come on, Mino! Come on, Mini! Come and get it! I'm ready for you, Mino! Here we see that by the 1970s, Roy Bean was ready to be drafted into the role of culture rebel and outsider. The film's mildly comic tone allows us to overlook Bean's cruelty and injustice and see him as just a lovable eccentric, a relic from the old days when conventional society hadn't yet closed in to confine people within the prison of social morality. The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean was shot mostly at the old Tucson studios and various other locations around the city. A few scenes were shot in Douglas. So, who was Roy Bean, really? Despite the legend, there's little evidence that he was a hanging judge. Only two death sentences can be traced to him, and in one of them, the prisoner escaped. His marriage to a Mexican child bride happened years earlier. He abused her and abandoned her before going to Texas. Most of the cases before his court were settled not by hanging, but by fines. He did, however, pocket all the money himself. He died in his bed after some binge drinking in 1903. But Lily Langtree did show up at his saloon after his death and was given a tour, just as in the John Huston film. In one of John Ford's westerns, a character says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. The prosaic facts of Judge Roy Bean's life and career were turned into a legend that illustrates the corrupt and amoral nature of law in the Old West. And why not? It's a hell of a good story. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.